完璧などありえないこの世界は不完全だから美しいバカバカバカ何俺は海賊王になる待ってなんと恋しさなの力を渡した時に言ったことを覚えているかいクレ違うそこじゃない変態遅い Hello and welcome to More Than Hentai, a podcast that is here to show you that anime is far more than just tentacles and catgirls. There's also countless stories of love, loss, laughs, hope, horror, and happiness that are just dying to be found. And I, Brendan White, the Salt and Pepper Senpai, am here to help you find them. More Than Hentai is powered by Audio Technica and our friends over at Dash Water. Go upgrade your audio and liquid game today. And joining me on this episode is one of the busiest and coolest dudes I know, whether it be running his own successful media magazine known as Pario, podcasting up a storm on the commentary booth, or making local professional wrestlers' dreams come true with Australian wrestling cards. This man is always grinding. He's a writer, publisher, podcaster, and YouTube creator, plus many, 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 many things. From an anime standpoint, he's big on Dragon Ball Z and Yu-Gi-Oh! You can find all the brilliant work that he does. By either at Hario Magazine, and that's P A R I O M A G A Z I N E, or at Jamie Apps Media. Jamie, welcome to the Riverside Studio, my friend. How might you be doing? I'm just as busy as you, I think, but yeah, other than that, very good. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, mate, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, we are we are fellow grinders, we are fellow uh, tape watchers and and content creators. If I guess we want to broad brush ourselves, but um, I think that probably sells you a little short. Like I'm. I'm doing a bit of podcasting primarily and, you know, working a nine to five and whatnot, but you, my friend, you are doing just about everything. Mm. Uh, so maybe we could start with that and get a bit of an understanding of the Jamie story, what you do, where people can find you, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can sort of take us on whatever journey you like from an overall Jamie apps perspective, and then we'll sort of shift into the anime talk, but yeah, give us the origin story. Give us the, uh, who is your daddy? What does he do? Give us the, whatever you want to share. Let's do it. Uh, so, yeah, the main thing is Pario Magazine interviewing people with a desire to create. So that could be anyone from podcasters, uh, wrestlers, actors, musicians. Um, I've got, had like a wrestling belt maker. Just basically anyone that does anything creative. Uh, then from there, that spins off into the Commentary Booth podcast, rating, reviewing movies and TVs to help people find their next viewing treat. Mm-hmm. And the latest crazy endeavor is Australian wrestling cards, professional wrestling trading cards for the Australian independent scene, purely independent uh, card sets away from all of the promotions. So we get a nice mixture of everyone from across the country and different places in their career and different locations around the country. So we've had people that are sort of in their first year of wrestling. We've had people that have been retired for 10 or 20 years and all in between. We've had people that are signed overseas and wrestling overseas as well and, and all the, the locals. So it's nice and busy. And I've literally last week sent out the 2024 set to go to print. So that should be okay. fingers crossed coming back before Christmas, but we will see. It's it's so good and very, very briefly and humbly touched on the many things you do there. Like you've interviewed 
some very, very, very heavy hitters. It's not like you're just talking to to schmucks like myself, even though you did talk to myself once on in uh, Pario as well, which I was very thankful for. But like, you've talked to some like Hollywood heavy hitters, like talking wrestling and just broader giant megastars. Like you've talked to Logan Paul, you've talked to countless musicians, content creators, comedians, you name it. Like you've walked many paths and had so many good, interesting honest discussions with people from from all walks of life so yeah perio is doing some really cool things uh commentary booth is a really good accompaniment to what you're doing there as well like you mentioned uh reviewing films and tvs and, and hopefully finding someone's next favorite thing and that's exactly what we're doing here on more than hentai trying to find the next anime for whether it be yourself or another co-host or a listener to jump in and consume and hopefully appreciate so that i like that there's some synergies there but the Australian wrestling cards thing. It is so cool and so out of left field. I find at least like the way my brain works because I don't know anyone else that's in the card game. Like I know a lot of cardboard collectors, but I don't know anybody literally making cards from the ground up. So can you explain like where that idea came from, how you turned that idea into reality? And and I'm assuming like obviously countless hours goes into this, but like- (laughs) where the hell do you start with this? Like, I don't know anyone that's made cards. Like it is such an unknown alien world for me. So I want to know all about it. Uh, so the initial idea came uh, when I saw an ad for the AEW when they had a set about to release, mm-hmm. uh, watching Dynamite, they were promoting the cards coming out. And then I fought back to it. And when I went to Pro Wrestling Gorilla for the Battle of Los Angeles in... 2015, I think it was, when uh, Robbie Eagles, Adam Brooks, and Jonah, who's now Bronson Reed, were representing Australia, three Aussies representing Australia in that really prestigious independent wrestling tournament. I decided Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over to LA for, I think I was there for four days, and then came home. You're an animal. (laughs) And uh, there was a person there that every year they make a... Um, fan made set of all of the competitors in the tournament and I thought back to that and I was like they were actually a really cool memorabilia piece so then with the ad, seeing that ad I was like there's nothing like that here in Australia let's let's research this let's see if it is a viable option mm-hmm. found a printer who could do it for me at a reasonable price with the, the cards printed the like foil booster packs the I then used to sell the cards. So that's gives it that little bit of extra prestige. It's not just here's your cards in with a rubber band around them. Uh, And then it was right. I probably need to contact some wrestlers and photographers. And thankfully through being a pretty hardcore wrestling fan and having done some interviews and stuff locally, I had some connections. I contacted a few of those people and I got I would say the top dog of Australian wrestling at the moment, Robbie Eagles, as the first person to be like, yeah, put me in and let's let's go. And then I think from there it was a domino effect of every person I asked. I was like, yep, cool, I'm happy to be involved. And once the cards were the first set, I built set of 30 cards and then I printed 50 sets of those 30 thinking, oh, this will take 12 months to sell the entire run of cards. And I sold out in two and a half months. I was like, oh. So good. Um, 
well, I probably can't wait nine months before I put out another set. So it was quickly back to the drawing board, design up another set of 30 cards, put those out. They've done really well. I think I've got maybe six sets left. No, six packs left of not six sets. So there, there's a couple of those left if people want to get those for Christmas, but they're pretty much all gone. And then, yeah, the 2024 set is now locked in at the printer. They've just got to print them, pack them, send them back to me, and then they'll be up on the website for pre-orders in January. Hell yeah. Where can where can listeners go hunt hunt the Australian wrestling card stuff down? Where, where's the best place for them to go? I'll put it obviously in the show notes, but if you want to want to mention it too, if people lazy now want to look at the notes. It is the best one is pariomagazine.com.au forward slash Oz Rest Cards. A-U-S-W-R-E-S-C-A-R-D-S. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. That is um it's so damn cool. Like I I love cards ever since i was a youngin i had a, a massive collection primarily nba when i when i was little but like as i've gotten older i've got in my sort of cupboard just off camera here there's pokemon cards there's wwe cards there's nfl there's nba there's like some of the marvel artist series ones which are really pretty as well so i think i need to need to add some australian wrestling cards to my collection so i'll get on over and, and grab maybe some of this this current set and then uh, hopefully peak some of that 2024 have you got um any plans to do like maybe some limited like signed cards in there you know how people get a bit thirsty for you know the one of ones with a with this autograph of of particular wrestlers is that on the roadmap i don't know if you can unveil that but i'm just asking while we're here <laughs> so yeah in the in the standard run sets i can't do that because the printer packs them all for me oh yeah true so i they would have to be a separate print and then they would have to be sold separately, which I have done. I've collaborated with a couple, with one of the photographers from Sydney, Sarah Newman of New Photography, and we did a run of cards for the Her Moments series of photos, which are like the backstage portraits of the wrestlers after they've just had like a pivotal moment in their careers. Oh really? So we did. I love a, that concept. We did a set of those cards and did some individually signed ones for uh, Jessica Troy, and then I collaborated with Pro Wrestling Down Under, a wrestling news website here in Australia, and for their 2023 Wrestler of the Year, and we sold signed cards for those performers that uh, were given that award. So good. So good. Yeah, we're very spoiled. We've got a we've got a constant good farm of of Australian professional wrestlers doing good things and and then getting recognised on the global stage. So maybe you found a couple of future future WWE or AEW stars in a couple of these sets that uh, could go on to very very big things. Well, that's that's the hope with some of these cards that people will get these cards, get them signed at shows, and then five, six years down the line, you have the first ever card of a wrestler that is holding a world title in one of those promotions. Like, so uh, good. A, like, I would love to have got uh, Grayson Waller before he went over. That would mm-hmm. have been so phenomenal. But, yeah, so we've got people like Robbie Eagles. We've had Jessica Troy, who I think is destined for big things, Deltas in the sets. Who else is in there that I think is oh Ben Braxton? I think he's a he's a guy that is 
very much in the WWE mold. He's a okay. big, tall, six foot something guy, jacked and athletic as all hell. He does a springboard moonsault and makes it look like the easiest thing in the world. I, I, I'm constantly in awe of the athleticism of some of these performers. Like I watched, like most people that were either in or, or lapsed professional wrestling fans, I watched Raw this week with the return of CM Punk and, and I watched the Creed Brothers oh. rumble in, in that tag team, was a tag team turmoil match I think they did. And some of the, the athleticism of those two dudes and the strength, I'm sitting there going, get the hell out of here. Like you are Superman, my friend. Like the, the power that these dudes have and the agility and the finesse they have in these giant muscular body types. I'm like, man, it's, I'm very jealous. As, as a fellow that's just five foot 11 and not in the best shape, I see these guys and go, God damn it. Give me just one of your genes. Give me 2% of what you're doing. Please make, make me better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of these guys are just freak athletes who, if they had put their dedication and passion into another sport would be at the top of that sport as well. Yeah, they just got that good, good genes and that good, good DNA. And speaking of good, good, let's talk about anime. Let's talk about your history, your experience with anime. Like I mentioned, as far as the Q&A that, that I got you to fill out sort of before we jumped on, just to get a bit of an understanding of things you enjoy from a viewing perspective. You, you mentioned Yu-Gi-Oh! and Dragon Ball Z's, I guess a couple of favorites or maybe uh, you know anime gateway drugs that got you into, into this medium and piqued a bit of interest so let's uh let's see that story uh so yeah growing up i think the first one would have been dragon ball z thanks to cheese tv i think like a lot of people my age yeah so cheese t cheese tv dragon ball z was the first one and then obviously i think they then brought in Yu-Gi-Oh, digimon those sort of ones and then since then i've kind of gone back and watched some Mobile Suit Gundam, my partner and her daughter highly recommended uh, Demon Slayer. Hell yeah. Which I started on the plane over there the first time I went over, not the last time, the time before I went over there. And then my iPad died and I plugged it in and there wasn't enough power coming from the charge the power oh, point from, the, from the, the PowerPoint in the chairs to charge my oh. iPad because it's an iPad Pro and it was like this isn't enough for me so it just wouldn't charge so I I got a decent way through it and then obviously during the holiday didn't get time to watch it and then came back and um, Netflix took it off Netflix so I couldn't watch the rest. God, I'm gonna have to send you my uh, my Crunchyroll login so you can watch the rest because it it is so good. That's okay. It is one of my favorites. I've been supplied with the Funimation login so I can watch it. Oh, that makes me very happy. Yeah, it's um, a good assortment. I love that you checked out Gundam as well. Like uh, th- there's so many iterations and so many spin-offs over the last like three decades of its existence. So whether you go back and watch the the nostalgia hit of Gundam from yeah, 20, 30 years ago, or you want to chuck on some of the newer iterations, like The Witch from Mercury that they've done. There's two seasons of that out at the moment from the last couple of years is so good. So good. So, yeah, you're eating well. You've got some uh, got some good sort of things on on the the viewing schedule there. Demon Slayer is certainly up there. It's it's one of my all time favorites. It's it's quickly climbing those ranks, and we haven't even seen the completion of the manga yet. I've got the whole box set slightly bur- blurred behind me here on this bookshelf, but um, yeah, I'm excited. Even though I know where the story's going, 
I'm excited to see it translated to screen because it is some of the most beautiful animation, not only in just anime, but just in an animation sense across any genre that I've ever seen. Like Ufa Table, the, the production company behind it, they are on something good there. It's some very rare air and it is gorgeous. The combat scenes and the sword play and the character models, it's um it's stunning. So yeah, check out Demon Slayer. We've got an episode of Demon Slayer coming to more than hentai in the very near future. But um yeah, it's it sounds like uh you've you've sort of been in and out. You've dipped a bit of a toe here and there with anime, but yeah, you're not sort of regularly consuming anime, you know, week by week. It's just erratically here or there when your partner might recommend you checking out something. Yeah, it's kind of when I hear from somebody that, oh, this is a really great show, you should watch it. So like okay. yeah, Demon Slayer, Tokyo Ghoul that you've recommended. Um, Attack on Titan was another one that I started and then didn't finish, but I want to get back to it now that it is completed so I can actually, yes. I know I've got an end point with that one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the Star Wars Visions ones, they've been a great like introduction to a bunch of different art styles in anime as well. It's gorgeous. Like I love that Disney and the Star Wars universe are taking the occasional risk. Like it is very much paint by numbers with the majority of what they do. But yeah, Visions is so out of left field. And like you mentioned, it introduces you to so many new artistic concepts and styles. And it is all gorgeous when it's either, you know, dialed right up or scaled right back as far as minimalism goes. And yeah, it's it's well worth a watch too. Anyone that hasn't checked that out on Disney Plus, add that to your rotation very quickly because yeah, it's it's good and they're great little self-contained stories that are enjoyable and just a visual feast. Like you are eating with your eyes watching that. And I think it's a perfect way to find help you find what particular anime style appeals to you as well because there were episodes in there where I was like, this story is cool, but I just am not vibing this animation style. So, yeah, I know, okay, if that's potentially a show by that studio is not going to appeal to me as much as one by X other studio, then that's a good little way for you to weed out and carve a path. Yeah, no, I I agree 100% because, yeah, there is, not all anime is made the same, that's for sure. It doesn't all look the same. It's not the same blueprint and archetype studio to studio. There is different nuances and character styles that certain studios are known for and others that aren't. So yeah, there's, there's some that you might watch where those story beats could just grab you and you could be in, but you'd be like, I hate how these characters are animated or I hate how these scenes are colored or the way they do really minimalist backgrounds with high detail foreground. Like there's, there's certain things that can be pretty jarring to, to the brain from an anime perspective. So yeah, I think i um, been able to get, a smorgasbord almost with something like Star Wars Visions where you're getting so many different bites of that cherry and seeing what works. And um, then you can go from there and expand your, your anime horizons from from there, hopefully. Yep. Yeah, and it's all like in a familiar setting. So it's it's not like you're trying to watch something that you have no idea what's happening. Like it's it's Star Wars, so you have at least that, that footing. Exactly, exactly. It's familiar, it's comfortable. You know, there's no weird tentacles and cat girls like I mentioned off off the rip there. It is an it's it's a world and a universe where even if you've only ever watched one Star Wars film or one TV show, you'll feel right at home checking out Visions, even if it does look visually very different. But yeah, you mentioned at the start there. So for listeners, for the first time checking out more than hentai, the way this works is 
we've had Jamie fill out a, a Q and A, as I mentioned, just to get a bit of a feel for his viewing habits. And, and based off that, I've tried to find an anime that he's yet to watch that I hope will be a solid recommendation and, and he'll enjoy it. And we're going to now deep dive on the first episode of that anime and talk about the good, the bad, everything else in between. And the title in focus for this episode is none other than Tokyo Ghoul, which is a dark fantasy manga series written and illustrated by Sui Ishida. It was serialized in Shishida's Seinen Magazine Weekly Shonen Jump from September 2011 through to September 2014. Tokyo Ghoul has over 47 million copies in circulation worldwide as of the end of 2021. Couldn't find any more current data from there, but it is still making one of the best-selling manga series of all time. The manga has also been adapted into two live-action films, various video games, and an anime television series produced by Perio that aired in 2014. We're going to be talking about the first episode from the first season of 12 episodes and Tokyo Ghoul itself. It currently holds a score of 7.79 on my anime list and it's based off 1.8 million user reviews. So it is heavily, heavily favored, reviewed very, very positively. And yeah, a lot of people in and around the internet love Tokyo Ghoul. It is the ninth most popular anime on all of my anime lists. So yeah, people be thirsting for Tokyo Ghoul. And the story of Tokyo Ghoul is as follows. In Tokyo, a reserve college student named Ken Kanaki encounters a menacing threat of flesh-eating ghouls that look human. He meets Rize Kamashiro, who turns out to be a dangerous ghoul. After a struggle with her, Kanaki receives organ transplants from her after her death, turning him into a human-ghoul hybrid. He grapples with his changing identity and tries to retain his humanity amidst the conflict between ghouls and government agents. So the first episode is called Tragedy. Where do you want to start this sucker off, Jamie? Do we want to just jump right on into this fantastic, juicy, visual feast of a cold open, or do we want to go somewhere else? the The story is yours to tell. Where do, where do you want to Where do you want to begin this talk? Uh, I'm happy to just start, and we'll just go through it in the order of the episode, I guess. It would make the most sense, I'd assume. But uh, you know what? We can we can have some fun with it. Yeah. So we get this very, very, very impressive open. We're sort of seeing. Tokyo, the cityscape from a helicopter that's sort of flying high above the skyline. We're getting some really, really beautiful uh, like traffic neon light usage from like the headlights and the taillights of the cars. And we're sort of getting those uh, like light waves or light vapor waves or whatever you call it when you, you know, slow the shutter speed down and you can get the light tear from a, a headlight or a taillight. So really, really pretty opening we've got this um yeah helicopter flying around they're sort of doing some voice work at the moment you're sort of like what's happening and then it cuts to this multi-rise apartment we're almost in the penthouse very glamorous very luxurious we see this female who is uh, a ghoul and she is killing and feasting on this series of bodies but it is Equally as disturbing as it is gorgeous, this scene, because the usage of light and neon, and we've got this massive giant wraparound fish tank with these really gorgeously illustrated koi fish swimming around. So we're seeing some of the light from the apartment throw itself and reflect and refract off the fish tank. The character model's looking really cool. It's, it's dimly lit, but yeah, we've got pops of purple and red and viscera. And it's just a cool moment. And then it gets even cooler because this unnamed dude arrives and he's pretty hulking and he's wearing a hockey mask. And you're like, what the hell is going on in these opening few minutes? Like there is a lot to unpack here. Yeah, it definitely uh, shocks you and like 
leaves you second guessing everything in that opening sequence. But yeah, the, the very first thing I wrote down was stunning cityscape. Like the visuals on that opening panning shot are insanely pretty. Like, wow. Yeah. The, the team at Perio or Piro, I, I still don't know how you, how you pronounce the, uh, the sort of production studio's name appropriately. So apologies for the people that are working there. The, the animation team behind Tokyo Ghoul, they understood the assignment. Like, it is a jaw-dropping open and going from, yeah, this very beautiful vista to then this really fancy high-end apartment complex. You're like, oh, this is cool. And then straight into body parts getting chewed on and blood sort of, you know, she's holding limbs and body parts up and there's blood dripping down into her mouth. Like it's a really, really jarring and confronting scene, especially because, you know, she just looks like a, a fairly normal, beautiful woman that just, I guess, has a bit of a thing for flesh. And then the big hulking dude that rolls in with the hockey mask and mentions uh, he's had orders from above to take this woman alive. So you're like, okay, there's, there's sort of like a hierarchy here with the ghouls, I assume what's going to play out. And he, he sort of charged in to attempt to attack her, but she sort of evades him. And, and you sort of see these extensions of out of her body. I don't know if it's like blood or just like red shaped appendages shoot back out into the fish tank puncture holes into the fish tank the water flushes through and, and knocks the hockey guy hockey mask guy down and it gives her enough time to evade and in the same time she steals his like um set of pliers and she sort of somehow like blink of an eye she's evaded this big dude who was pretty imposing you think he was going to go to town and cause a lot of ruckus in this apartment complex but no she agile quick as a cat into the rafters and then almost up to the, the rooftop of the apartment complex, throws his pliers away, uh, said, you know, that was interesting interaction, but was a little bit bored. And then we get a really, really simple Tokyo Ghoul title card after these few minutes. You're like, oh, okay, so this is the world. This is the introduction. We don't get the standard anime opening with an audible-based banger and some introduction to characters and some imagery that you don't really quite understand. It's just... Boom, cold open, here's some death, here's some ghouls, here's the title card, welcome to Tokyo Ghoul, and you're like, all right, I am I think I'm in, I'm along for this ride. Yeah, and when I when you recommended it and I just sort of watched the trailer, um, you, you get that same feeling where there's a lot of intrigue into what is actually going on in this universe. Like, clearly there's something amiss with this woman and this big, big hulking guy, you I'm not entirely sure what their dynamic is, but I'm intrigued to find out more. And you mentioned like her agility. She's very fast and it's sort of very dynamic in the way the action sequences play out. And as someone that loved like Dragon Ball Z and the fight sequences in that show, I was like, okay, I'm immediately in on these fight sequences. I want to see more of these weird, like brightly sort of electric colored superpowers as well, because they all seem to have different versions. Yeah. That's a perfect way to describe it. Like it, it is like electricity coming out of these, these ghouls. Like it's, it's yeah, really brightly colored red. And yeah, she's got these spiky appendages that almost make it like, she's like a death octopus. Like mm -hmm. there's additional like limbs coming out of her and yeah, she's super fast. So she evades this unnamed hockey mask man and, and, Get, flee to the rooftops and yeah that's sort of the end of that opening 
then it cuts to the next morning and it is such a stark contrast to those first few minutes where it's very straight laced, very serious, violent, grim, and pretty a lot of darkness and, and mixing in those sort of electric based colors like you, you mentioned. But then in the next morning, we're at a local coffee shop. We get introduced to Carnegie and Hide, his friends. They're just sitting there, just a couple of young teenage boys, you know, still at school, uh, having a coffee, talking about life and just being awkward teenagers. I do like that they overlay the news getting talked about in the background on the television in the coffee shop where we're hearing about the murders in that exact same apartment complex. So that's kind of cool that we get this juxtaposition as far as the death and decay on the telly. But then these two young dudes, they're just, you know, just typical young, dumb teenagers talking about love and, you know, finding girlfriends and stuff. So it's it's a really big step sideways compared to what we got in those opening minutes. But it was it's cool. Like it didn't feel out of place. And I, and I immediately was like, yeah, I, I love these kids. Like Hide, Karnaki, they seem like a, a pair of good buds and they're just living their best life having having coffee before school. Yeah, like super relatable. And I think I think that juxtaposition between the two sides was like crucial in terms of the story that we go on. You have the really calm, chilled out vibes of Carnegie in the coffee shop in contrast to that crazy epic scene. And it's like, yeah, it's the two, it's like the yin and the yang of this this show and the story. Yeah, it, it feels very much like these two worlds are colliding where these ghouls have been around for an undefined period of time at the moment when we're watching the anime. We, we know they exist because we hear more in the the news where they're talking about the police have called in the CCG to investigate. So you're like, what acronym is that? Like they don't say it means dirt, dirt, dirt. You're just like, oh, okay. I'm guessing that's like a special task force uh, focusing on ghoul specifically and ghoul crime and whatever. So my mind immediately, I'm like, oh, so, so like ghouls and humans have just coexisted and, and they just get along. And, and like, how long has this been happening for? Like, it feels very very casual that they're just talking about this on the news. Like it's just, just another day in Tokyo. Oh, these ghouls have done it again, but like, it's okay. Like it was kind of interesting that it was really downplayed. So I was like, oh, okay, this is happening for a while. This isn't like the first ever attack. And they're like, oh, what is a ghoul? What's wrong with this woman? It feels like it's, it's commonplace in Tokyo. So I'm like, okay, so that's, that's the table setting going on. This is something that's been happening for, I assume quite a while. Yeah, I think that's what makes it most interesting as well. It's not like, say, uh, I'm trying to think, like Morbius, the uh, Sony yeah. vampire Ooh. movie that's not great, although my partner will my say skin it's crawl. great. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't like it. But in that one, like the vampire attack is unexpected and unusual for everyone in that universe, whereas this one, everyone is kind of like, oh, it's just another ghoul attack. It's slightly unusual in that there's multiple victims this time but other than that we're kind of like oh, it's just another ghoul attack it's like okay what's what's the deal here and yeah like you said i sat there for a while trying to ponder what is ccg what could that acronym be mm-hmm. we don't get the 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 announcement of what ccg stands for but my assumption is that it's a, a specialized ghoul hunting task force task force that are brought in on on these types of situations so yeah we've, we've got that news sort of playing on in the background as, as Karnaki is talking to Hide about this girl that he's crushing on and you know she's special and he's never felt this way before and Hide 
thinks that he's talking about Toka, who's the barista at the coffee shop oh. they're at. And so he's like, is it her? Is it her? And he calls her over as the the young, dumb teenage boys would do. And he calls her over and he's like, you know, are you, are you seeing anyone? Like, are you in a relationship? And she naturally freaks out because she looks to be around the same age as, as these boys as well. She promptly flees that whole awkward situation, goes back to the safety of the, of the, of the counter. But then we see this purple haired girl enter the coffee shop and, you know, we get one of those cliched rom-com based moments where she's walking through and they slow the walk down a little bit and sort of just telegraph how special and pretty she is. And then Karnaki's like, that's, she's the one, that's the one I've been crushing on all the time. She comes here. She, she's the one for me. So then um, we see Hide. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of bored of this situation. Good luck with her. I'll catch you later. And so he he flees, but then we see Karnaki and the, the woman's name is Kamashiro. She sits down at the coffee shop and he's like hard eyeing her from across the coffee shop. And then he sees that she is reading one of his favorite authors. So clearly it's like, it's meant to be, we're star-crossed lovers. This is my future here. And it's a cute moment where I'm like, okay, so we're getting like a bit of rom-com mixed in with some horror and some thrilling type of moments here and some gore. I'm like, what tone is this anime ultimately going to land on? Because we've had two different ends of the spectrum in these first like five minutes. Yeah. And that's, I think that's jarring too. Like that could, I could see that putting people off very quickly where you're like, oh, we've gone from this one thing to now we're at the total opposite end of the spectrum and you're kind of like, uh, what's happening? And yeah, I think as long as you, if you push through the first episode, then it, it seals it. It reminded me very much of Invincible, where you had yes. to push through and finish, finish the first episode. And then, then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm off to the races. I got to watch more and more of this. And that is the tough part with this format or more than a hand dive. It's, it's, it's great that we just deep dive on that first episode, but the first episode can be so heavy and full of table setting that we don't often get the momentum really established in the first 20 odd minutes as, as well, because, you know, 20 minutes isn't a ton of time to tell a lot of story. So yeah, these, these directors need to be very tactful as far as getting enough backstory established where we're like, okay, we care about these characters. I think we have a bit of an idea going on, but yeah, is it exciting enough or is it emotional enough for us to push forward into episode two, three, right through to 12 in, in episode in season one. So yeah, this, this first episode and these first like, opening scenes in the first five minutes it is very jarring like that's a perfect word you use because yeah we're going from one extreme to the next like it's hyper violent you're like oh this is a little unsettling to, to cutesy romance time you're like am i watching the same thing here like what are you doing to me tokyo ghoul but i'm a sucker for both of those genres so i i was still on the train and, and sort of kept pushing there so we get a little bit more of that darkness weaving in the very next scene because uh, after he he realizes that um, Kamashiro is reading one of his favorite authors, it flashes a few hours ahead of time. It's it's now the evening. Karnaki calls Hide on the phone, and Hide is sort of stopped on his way home. It's it's evening now in Tokyo. We can hear that there's uh, like police in the background. There's sirens sort of flashing in the scene, and we find out you know another ghoul attack. So you can see straight away it's like you know that was sunshine and rainbows at the coffee shop, but now nightfall is set almost and shit's hitting the fan again. There's there's death and decay happening all around. 
So I like that we sort of have it bookended where it was thrilling open, gory open, soft cutesy middle, and now it's starting to sort of combine those two almost and we're somewhere in between both of those worlds. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And we find out too, the cops uh, speaking off camera, they're explaining, you know, ghouls, they only usually eat once and that'll sustain them for a month. It's kind of weird that there's there's so many attacks happening now. So yeah, circling back to what you said, where it's like, it's just commonplace. It's almost like they're, they're seen as like a stray dog. It's like, oh, it's just a dog or a shark attack. It's fine. Like, don't worry. It doesn't happen often enough to be major. It's all good. But yeah, these these attacks and these murders are escalating. And then we get this joking moment between the police officers where they're like, oh, if, if only we, why can't the ghouls just target the bad guys? <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, you idiots. Yeah, it's like anytime there's some sort of evil presence, it's like, why can't they just get the, the bad people? It's like, um, that's not how these things generally work. But I think that idea of a shark attack as Australians, I think that, that resonates with me a lot where it's like, yeah, one shark, one or two shark attacks here or there. Everyone is kind of like, oh, okay. But if if someone was getting eaten by a shark every single day or multiple times a day, there would be panic in the streets. Oh, yeah. Like I, I have a bit of a, not a phobia, but like I've got a respect for the sea definitely. And anytime when I'm in the ocean and either I can't see the bottom or I can't touch the bottom anymore... I immediately think what could happen because yeah, I've watched and read so much scary shit, whether it be fact or fiction about sharks over the years where I'm like, is my time coming? Am I going to get a leg taken off? Because yeah, it happens often enough to be a semi-regular thing in the news that pops up. But like you said, it's not a daily thing. And if it became a daily thing, no one would be in the ocean or a select few. I'd say like beaches in Australia, that beach culture would be gone very quickly. If, if people were getting eaten by sharks every day, yeah, people people wouldn't be taking a swim between the flags. Yeah, the, I think the old ocean pools and regular pools would be getting a much heavier workout if that was the case. 100%, yeah. So uh, we see, yeah, these cops having a bit of a chuckle about the, the ghoul attacks. And then we get a, another sort of flash forward. We've, we've now jumped to the weekend and we see that uh, Carnegie and Rize are on a date and they're going to the bookstore they're sitting down. It's one of those very awkward, cliched first dates going on. Really cute, really endearing. They're having a discussion about their favorite author that they share together. And then just conveniently, the, the favorite book of that favorite author is both of their um, favorite books too. So it's like, oh, it's, it's way too much of a coincidence. We're definitely soulmates. And you can see the, the love building in Carnegie's eyes very quickly. We get this moment where he, he sort of brings up, he's like, hey, you, you barely ate a thing. Are you feeling okay? And then um, Rize sort of says, oh, I've, I've got a little bit of an eating disorder. Excuse me, I need to duck off to the bathroom. And she goes and, and they focus on this very delicious looking sandwich, I might add, that uh, she's ordered, but she's only taken like a bite off the top, like the tiniest little eensy peensy bite you've ever seen on a sandwich. So you're like, hmm, what's happening here? Like, does she have an eating disorder or is there more to this? Is there more that meets the eye to Rize? That was the first like alarm signal for me that I had where I'm like, hmm, this seems a little strange. Like even if you had one bite, you think you'd have a, a full-size proper bite, not just like a little <laughs> mouse on the top. So did, did that sort of trigger any alarm bells or any like, hmm, maybe we can't feel too good about Rize here or were you sort of just going with it and sl- swept up in this young love? No, I think like with all of the set dressing that we'd been given in the lead up with the chaos happening outside of this 
small bubble and then with so many of these coincidences starting to sort of stack up on oh she happens to read the exact same author and they have the exact same favorite book it did start to become something where you're questioning like is this all some sort of sinister plan yeah, I, I agree. I, I tried to be like, no, nah, it's just cute. They're in love. They're going to have babies and live a good life together. But there was a part of me going, yeah, I'm watching you, Rize. I'm watching you, Rize Kamashiro, because there's something suspect here. But the date seems to be going well because they're in the they're in the bookshop and it's, I don't know if it's morning or lunch or, or afternoon, but then it sort of flashes forward again and it's now the evening. Before we jump there, there was one little note that I took for that part during this incredibly awkward first date. The random gratuitous cleavage shot, is that, yeah. like, that's just an anime trope in my mind? Yeah, that, that's an anime trope. So, so yeah, we, we have, a, have a moment where Rize sort of reaches over towards Karnaki and, yeah, we just get the shot straight down the blouse. Like, we see the, yeah, the, the breasts, obviously they're, they're covered with a bra and stuff, so it's not like full gratuitous nudity, but it is, it is unnecessary and... It is a, a pretty regular trope in anime where if there is a bit of an awkward lead character that we're dealing with that isn't maybe very successful with the women, they love to lean into that stuff where they're like, let's just put them in awkward situations and put like a set of boobs in their face or put them in a small awkward space for some reason and they're sort of hiding from someone and then the hand ends up on the boob or like it happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. I, I yeah, think that so. it leans into the like awkward teenager just discovering the opposite sex thing but yeah it was just that that one still frame of that shot i was like oh that's okay that we're, we're doing that yeah we we did that luckily they didn't do it for too long it was like a couple of seconds like you said it was a, a frame that was very fleeting yes it was unnecessary but i guess yes they wanted to show how awkward and kind of wholesome because he didn't know what to do. Like he looked and then felt horrible, didn't know where to look and was just uncomfortable, but also smitten. Like he's, he's just, just a, a young warm blooded boy sitting across from the love of his life. So yeah, that, that does happen. And, and that does happen in, in a lot of anime. So um, yeah, strap in. There'll be a little bit more awkward sort of suggestive nudity or pseudo nudity scenes in many viewings, hopefully, or hopefully not. I don't know, but it's out there. So yeah, so the, it jumps forward to the evening. Rize's telling Karnaki, I'm scared to go home because I live in an area where a lot of these attacks have been happening. I'm, I'm a little worried to walk home alone right now. It's dark. Again, alarm bells. Yeah. So, so I'm like, hmm, yeah, what's happening here? Are you laying a trap here right now, Rize? Or is this true? But Karnaki just being the, the naive slash stoic man now or he's like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna walk you home it's okay i'm gonna protect you i've had a great date the love of my life we have the same favorite author the same book all's gonna be good so they're walking home and he's starting to share a little bit about himself they're just talking holy and soul about books because that's that's their primary touch point between the two they've got we find out that he lost his dad when he was really young and that's what developed his love for books because he started reading all his dad's books because he was home a lot. His mum was walking. So he was just killing time and escaping into these books. We then find out also that his mum has passed away. So Karnaki is, is just on his own at a very young age. And after this sort of, sort of story ends, 
he has this moment where he pauses. He's like, oh, I've only ever told this story to Hide. So he's starting to think, yeah, this, this girl is the one because she just made me open up and I've shared so much about myself. And yeah, it's, it's a sad moment hearing that he's lost his parents and he's doing this all on his own. So that would be a lot to juggle for, for a young man. And then realizing that I guess he's only ever shared this story in his life with two other people until this, or well, one other person and now two in this exact moment. Yeah. And yeah, that definitely makes him a much more sympathetic character as well, because you're, you're sort of looking at it and like this poor kid like has had all of this horrible stuff happened to him. I kind of want him to get the girl now. I felt exactly the same, like immediately hearing these stories and, and, and as a guy that's, that's lost his father as well, I understand. And, and I've still got things of my dad that I've, I've sort of used to, I guess, keep those memories going and learn more about him since, since he's passed. So yeah, I was, I was very firmly in like Carnegie's corner here where I'm like, no, yeah, get the girl, live the good life nothing but positive vibes for you, young man. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you, kiddo. Like, it's going to be great. And then we get a really quick flash where we see Toka, who was the the girl working at the at the coffee shop, had that awkward exchange with uh, Kaneki and Hide for a hot second. And she's walking home with someone and the friend she's walking with is like, is it all cool? Are you okay? Because she, she sees Kaneki and Rize sort of walking together. And it's just a little nothing scene. Because I'm like, okay, what's happening here? I guess they all live around the same same area of Tokyo. That's I guess why they frequent the same coffee shop. But there was also like, hmm, I'm going to write this in my notes because I feel Toka has something to play in this broader story here, but I don't know what that is quite yet. Yeah, it's it's just it's a, a fleeting moment where it's just like the look that she gives. You sort of see this look and it's like, that was that was a, a sort of knowing, judgmental look, not a, oh, hi, guys, like, we're friendly moment. Yeah, I wasn't sure, like, when I saw the look, because she saw them interact in the coffee shop, and I guess she's seen them indirectly in that coffee shop for probably months and months. So they're familiar characters, so I wasn't sure if it was maybe a look where she was partially jealous because she got, you know, in that awkward situation where Hide was like, hey, have you got a boyfriend? And she, maybe she thought, oh, there's a chance with Hide or Kaneki here that they could take her on a date. So I wasn't sure if it's like, hmm, is it a jealousy thing or is there something ominous that I'm, I need to pick up on and sort of run with a little bit more? So yeah, we get a super quick scene with Toka there. She continues away walking home. Uh, and then Kaneki keeps walking uh, Rize home. And then Rize's like, this is, you know, this is my stop. It's all good. Thank you so much. He then requests to take her on a second date. But Rize, then she's like, hey, I've had my eyes on you for quite a while, Kaneki, like a very long time, sort of leans in and, and is sort of whispering some of this stuff in his ear. Personality changes, you know, gets a little bit dark, a little bit sort of naughty and how she's like, yeah, I've had my eyes on you, very sultry for a long time, saying how badly that she wants him. And you're like, hang on, what? This isn't the same wholesome <laughs> girl that loves books and is awkward and, and has a, in air quotes, an eating disorder that we've just seen sort of this romance develop over, over this date today. And I'm like, what is going to happen now? What was you feeling in this moment where we sort of see this instant change with her before, I guess the, the physical change, but what were you feeling when you start to see this sort of character just darken right in front of our eyes? Yeah, there's definitely a, like 
instantaneous switch to being a bit more sinister. And during that whole sort of sultry little talk into his ear, it made me immediately go, wait, are these people supposed to be the same age or is she like much older than him? Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And I, I thought the same and like not sort of burying the lead or, or you know where things are going to go next. We'll talk about it very shortly. But then I started thinking these ghouls, do they sort of almost age like a vampire does? Like once you're bitten by a ghoul, are you almost ageless and in air quotes eternal and, or you just age really slowly? So yeah, is she an older woman preying on this this young teenage boy because the vocal tone changed? Like I said, the, the way she was talking to him, yeah, very, very sexually suggestive and, and very dominating as far as what she's saying and what she wants to do. But then we see her transition from human to ghoul. The eyes change. I love the way that they, like the art style, and even from the manga, how the, the ghoul's eyes look where they're black with the pops of red in there. Like they really, really stand out. Like sinister, like you said, perfect word to describe it. Like they're just really unsettling the eyes. And yeah, we see her transition into ghoul mode, the appendages pop out everywhere and we get another pseudo octopus ghoul looking thing with the the bright electric red appendages sticking out and they extend out and then she grabs him and she chomps right down on his neck and shoulder, bites in, there's blood going everywhere. Like she's had a good old bite of him. Oh yeah. And you sit there and go, shit, is, is Kaneki dead right now? Like that is a hell of a wound. What is happening? Yeah, and... Yeah, that's when the, it's like, like we saw at the start the incredible violence, but this one felt like even worse just because it was so intimate as well. Because she's, yeah, they've just been on this big long date and then she's chomping down like, viciously on his neck and you sort of go, oh, wow, this show is going to get all sorts of intense now. Yeah, it, it escalates very quickly. And yeah, I completely agree with you regarding it feeling a lot more intimate because yeah, like Carnegie, this whole day or these days and weeks and months leading up to this perfect day that he's just had with Rize, he's feeling like he's he's king of the world, he's cloud nine, all his dreams have come true in this moment. And then to see all those dreams just snuffed out instantaneously with this very vicious attack from Rize. And then it gets even more unsettling because, yeah, her her voice continues to change and she talks about, you know, I, I love to have fun and I can't wait to rip your organs out. And you're just like, what? What? Um, Okay, we're going there. Um, Karnaki, who I thought was going to be this little underdog hero that we're going to root for throughout this season, he's about to get eaten and he's dead. Like, what's happening here? Someone come please save Karnaki because... I love this little guy and I want him to succeed. But I also think it's clear that she's a predator and she's probably been doing this to, to lowly, you know, heart sick boys for probably a long while. It feels like she's, she's got a pretty good, uh, pretty good trap and a pretty good plan that she plays out here that ends with her uh, eating them and ripping their organs out. Yeah. It definitely didn't feel like this was a first attempt at this whole scenario. Yeah, no, nah, she, she's experienced. Rize knows what's up. And and so, yeah, Karnaki gets to his feet, attempts to run, suffering a lot of blood loss and in a little bit of a haze because, yeah, his, his neck and shoulder have just been chomped to bits by Rize. 
But those uh, blood-like appendages, they just extend out and grab him and just drag him back. I kept thinking the octopus thing again there where these big old tentacles or like a giant squid come out and grab him and drag him back because they're sort of in this area. It's, it's like a construction site where they're, where this attack's happening out of, I guess, common general populace. There's I couldn't really see anything residential around in, in the shots. It was, yeah, they're in this sort of like construction site happening and yeah the scene of him getting dragged back is really unsettling because you can see the panic in his eyes you can see that he's i guess in this moment accepting that uh that death is imminent and he's about to get eaten alive yeah and i love the way that she sort of led him down this path too by sort of having him recount his sort of life story and then all of a sudden he's like how did i get here like how did, why would I walk into this really secluded place after when we left the um, place, the bookshop? She talks about, oh, I live in the area where all of these attacks have been happening. And now all of a sudden I'm in like this dark alleyway construction zone, totally alone with this person. It, it was very, very expertly done. Like you said, it was just a little subtle lead where she got him so focused on this life story and opening up about the hard hardships that he's encountered he hasn't realized that she's taking him almost into this maze and laying this trap where they're so far away from general humans just walking the streets they're in this isolated construction area so it is a it is a sad moment when yeah he sort of wises up to i'm trapped i'm screwed i'm gonna die someone help and as he's getting sort of dragged back and she's talking about eating him and whatever else one of those appendages whoosh, impales him in the chest and then uh she sort of got him lent up against the the wall of this construction site she's very eager to still uh disembowel him and whatnot but then she's like oh i guess you're not as strong as i hoped i think i've just killed you i think you're dead but that's a shame because you've got the right amount of fat on you as far as the the flesh consumption which i thought i'm like that's such a creepy fucked up thing to say but it was also so perfect yeah, it's like, yeah, she's not looking at him as a person. Like, she has no empathy or emotion about killing this kid. It's literally his food, his livestock, essentially. Exactly. So you're like, God, it's it's the beginning of the end for Carnegie. But then we sort of see a, a shot, like, from, from sort of like a bird's eye view at the top of part of this construction area where there's a lot of piping and poles and, and construction-based material up there. And you can see some of the the fit the fittings and the fixtures keeping it secured starts breaking and all of this construction stuff falls down, lands right on Rize, crushes her, and then she's like, how could this happen? And you can sort of see the, the ghoul eye poking through one space of exposed area while she's completely covered in all of this uh, construction equipment that has pretty much almost led to her downfall. So you're like, whoa, okay. Was that completely by chance? Was there someone up there that's tampered with that? What's what's happening here? Like there's there's so much more mystery that I do not have answers for right now. Yeah, it made me think like she's planned everything about this attack down to essentially down to the T, but then is obviously committing the attack in a new location that or She's used this location before and now all of this scaffolding has been like, was added that day or something. It was something she wasn't expecting. 
So that was a nice little twist on it where you sort of then are sitting there thinking, yeah, is that just pure accident? Is that another random coincidence in the life of these two? Or is this intentionally, has she been attacked by someone? Yeah, so it was making making the cogs in my head turn. And then we get this really beautiful dreamlike sequence where Carnegie is underwater, not getting chased by sharks, but is underwater in this really beautiful scene. The the ocean is is nice and nice and clean and, and free of any type of badness. And he's just swimming around in this ocean. But then we notice that Rize is in there and we see a bit of a shift in this ocean where she's swimming up after him, just like a shark that we talked about earlier, which I, I like that it sort of connects in that way. And she's swimming after him in this ocean, but behind her, there's just this like wave of blood and chaos and just evil that's sort of following her as she swims after Carnegie. But as this sort of dreamlike sequence is playing out, we get confirmation that uh, Carnegie has been rushed to hospital. We hear this doctor talking. All we hear is just the voiceover of the doctor. And he's saying, you know, in order to save this boy, we need to give him an organ transplant. And then the nurse is like, but there's some risk with that. And he's just like, no, I'll, I'll put my reputation on the line. It's all good. And so we find out that he's taken the organs from Rize and put them in Carnegie's body and yeah, performed this life-saving surgery or, potential life-saving surgery in this moment. But I like that they layer in the voiceover work over this really pretty ethereal oceanic dream sequence, but then the dream sequence gets all kind of fucked up. And I guess thinking about it now, I guess the seeing Rize and all the blood and the darkness combine with Carnegie in the ocean, I guess, is their two bodies coming together in real life in a way. Like it's a bit of a metaphor, that part. So I'm like, hmm, I, I like that. Uh, I like that storytelling. I like that imagery. Yeah, I thought it was like a, a beautiful depiction of sort of the the tale of like the afterlife or people like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Like it was it was that story, but in a fresh new spin of the underwater element where you can still hear the doctor and the nurses having that conversation, but it's obviously muffled by the water. And then, yeah, you have the the darkness like sweeping up to try and pull him down before they can complete their surgery. Um, I did think it was weird that the doctor decided to do an organ transplant with the other victim of this catastrophe. Mm. I I guess it was like, we can only save one. So let's, let's use her organs to save, to save Carnegie. It'll all be good. And I, I guess, I was thinking to him, like, this feels very fast and loose. But then I thought back, I'm like, well, he doesn't really have a next of kin to sign off on this surgery. So I guess they've just sort of went, you know what? YOLO. The doctor the doctor seems like uh, you know, he's Dr. House or something. He's like, fuck the rules. I'm just going to operate on this person and put this other person's organs in them. It'll all be fine. And I guess, yeah, if the paramedics had got there and pronounced her dead on the scene already, no harm, no foul, I guess. I guess so. And and I don't really know the the rules and regulations of Japanese medicine. So so maybe it can be a little bit uh little bit lax like this. Who knows? But uh yeah, so so uh Karnaki wakes up, he's now the, the proud owner of uh Rize's organs, and he's he's struggling to eat in the hospital. He can't put anything down, so straight away my uh my private investigator hat was on and I'm like, I remember this with Rize not eating the sandwich. What is going on here? So 
I uh, I sort of connected that breadcrumb from that sandwich earlier. We also find out that Hide has stopped by several times and they really do well in this episode showing how much Hide loves and cares about Karnaki. Like <laughs> they're best friends. They've been friends since they were you know, young kids at school. And Hide, I guess, knows that, yeah, he doesn't have parents there to, to support and look after him. So Hide sort of has taken on this role as a, as a surrogate parent or like a, a brother and is helping him out. And, and there's a lot of love between the two. So I like that that was established regularly and often in this first episode between Karnaki and Hide. Yeah, you can definitely feel the, the sort of brotherly love between those two where, yeah, he, he is trying to do everything he can, but uh, Karnaki is obviously struggling physically and emotionally following the accident and the trauma. So he's kind of almost pushing his best friend away, which then makes you continue to second guess, like, yeah, what, what is happening here with this whole organ transplant from Rize, who our most recent sighting of was very sinister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made me question, like, what path is Karnaki going to go down? Are, are these organs going to turn him bad too? Like, I'm like, what is going to happen here? Is he going to be preying on young people in construction yards in the future? Who knows? But yeah, we have that moment because yeah, the nurse is, is telling, telling Karnaki that, yeah, your friend stopped by again, just showing that love. Then the doctor comes in and he goes back to the well again. And he's like, Oh, we've noticed Karnaki that you haven't been eating. So I'm like, Hmm, there's a theme here. They keep going back to this. My uh, super sleuthing is uh, knowing no limits right now. But then Karnaki sort of says um, that his sense of taste has changed and everything that he eats tastes disgusting. And I'm like, oh, gotcha. I mean, you're a ghoul now, Karnaki, or something. You, you, you know, you, you're no longer fully human anymore. There's There's something going on in your insides that is changing and I doubt it's probably for the good. Yeah, I thought that was a cool way to introduce this whole change in his life with the i guess ghoul infection is probably the easiest way to describe it yeah i think that's a perfect way to describe it so yeah they they haven't quite confirmed it yet but yeah they're certainly not dancing around what could be happening here like the the doctor is very vocal about it Karnaki's very vocal about his sense of taste changing and everything tasting horrible and then it sort of flashes forward a few days from from that moment there and, and Karnaki has gone home he gets home and, and sees that Hide has left a care package on the door with all his favorite foods and his favorite burger. Like, he's a sweetheart. Like, like we all need mate. friends like Hide. Like, he's he's a legend. He's he's just wants the best for Karnaki. And in the note, he, like, he left him a handwritten note and it was like, you know, hope you're doing well, but please hurry back to school. It's lonely without you here. It's, I'm just like, my heart, my, my heart is full for you, Hide. You're, you're a good man. And, and Karnaki, I hope you can see how sweet and beautiful you made is. Yeah. You've just gone through this crazy trauma and yet he's stocked up your entire pantry and fridge. So you can just go home and try to recover as bestly as best you can. And as quickly as you can. Yeah. And, and he's still ignoring Hide, which is, which is sad. Hasn't returned his calls or whatever else. He's just sort of ducking him because I guess clearly Karnaki is, is processing what the hell has happened and what is continuing to happen. And we see sort of later in the evening, Karnaki sitting on the bed. He looks very disconnected. He's just zoned out, not really sure what's happening. Just very frozen and lifeless sitting on the edge of the bed. We've got the television on the background with the late night news playing. 
and then we find out there's like a, a ghoul expert on the television talking about things and Carnegie's ears sort of prick up and is alerted when this ghoul expert sort of says, yeah, our tongues work dif- uh, differently to them. They hate the taste of human food and find it repulsive. And so he has this moment about, I hate human food now all of a sudden too from the hospital. What is going on? He jumps up from the bed quick as a flash, grabs the care package of food and drinks that Hide left him and he's trying everything. It all looks really tasty. It all looks very delicious and he's, he's trying a bite of this and a sip of that constantly spinning it back up and running to the toilet and vomiting everywhere. And even his favorite hamburger that Hide hunted down, especially for Carnegie, he cooks that, uh, looks delicious, big old patty laced with gravy. I was getting very, like I was salivating at this moment. Anime food just gets me all kinds of sort of wound up and, and hungry. And he eats into that and same thing, can't digest a damn thing. And you're like, ooh. How far away are we here from complete ghoul confirmation, Jamie? It feels like we're on we're on the doorstep. Yeah, it feels like they've pretty much solidified it. They're just waiting to give us the red eyes. Yeah, it's it's it feels like it's imminent. And yeah, we get Hide trying to call Karnaki again. Karnaki just yeah screens the call, doesn't answer it, uh, and that's where we get some of that context about where they've been best friends since since they were kids. And in the voicemail that Hide leaves. There's this really cute moment again where Hide's like, hey, I can't remember the author's name, but it's like, hey, your author, your favorite author is doing a signing at this bookstore in the next couple of days. Give me a call back. We can get along because in just a nothing part of the conversation earlier where he got confirmation about his favorite author, he remembered that and researched it and, and found that, yeah, this author's in town doing a signing. And I was like, oh, this this really, really touches my heart again. So yeah, Hide's... I don't know if he's in like a shared apartment or if he's like just at a mate's place because he's, yeah, he's tried to call Carnegie, leaves that voicemail and there's this other dude in the room with him just doing some work on a computer and they're talking about, yeah, they've been, uh, Hide and Carnegie being friends since they were kids. But this other dude at the computer, he's like, he's not answering you. I just cut ties with him. He's like, you know, fuck him. He's done. Just throw him away. Like move on. I'm like, oh, it's a bit aggressive. Yeah. Oh, that's it's a really little unnecessary. <laughs> Like my mate almost died. I, I I understand if he just doesn't really want to deal with people right here. Yeah, yeah. But this other guy, I'm like, hmm, that seems a little intense. I'm gonna keep my eyes on you. You could just be a nothing character in this moment, but I'm like, maybe, maybe there's more to you too. So yeah, we have that exchange with Hide and this this other blonde haired fellow with glasses, and then it jumps into the next scene, and Carnegie is now walking through Tokyo, very disoriented stomach rumbling he's got the the hoodie on covering his face as much as he can and you can see he's really struggling with life his inner thoughts are just sort of saying flesh 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 and he's like starting to deal with paranoia and psychosis and this whole moment is not only creepy but it's beautiful seeing all these people walk through some of these main streets of tokyo and the the light work of the way it's animated we're in evening and seeing the light playing off the dark and the reflections and just all this uh, traffic of people. It's gorgeous. And seeing him struggle so much in between all this beauty, it's like, yeah, this is, this is slick. This is slick. Like, yeah. Um, Piro shout out to them. They know what's up. And this is another one of those scenes, like you said, at the start where I'm just like, this is stunning. I was in on this scene. I was eating it up. Yeah. They capture, they capture what I love about Tokyo, despite never being there. Like, 
when I think Tokyo, I think of like Shibuya crossing at night with all of the like neon lights and everything. And they really capture that vibe in this whole walking through the city scene. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And then that beauty takes a very quick turn because you can hear those inner thoughts starting to take over and the, the flesh is gone from like a whisper to a dull roar to almost a scream in Karnaki's head. And then he sees this, this young girl crossing the road and I'm like, is he going to just launch at her and attack her in front of everybody right now, right in the middle of this busy street? Doesn't happen. He sort of freak, freezes up and is just standing there, has a lot of restraint to try and stop himself from biting this poor little girl. A couple walks past and they're like, ooh. Like, I think the the girl was like, are you okay? And then the, the, the partner of the girl's like, no, don't get involved. You know, he's not worth it. He's crazy sort of thing. And then Karnaki freaks out in this moment again, runs all the way home, uh, charges into the door of his apartment, runs to the mirror and he looks in the mirror and his left eye has, I guess, turned ghoulish, you could say. So his left eye has gone fully black with this electric red iris highlighted there. His right eye is still normal, but seeing this eye turn ghoul is such a cool moment and it's super interesting the way they frame this shot where... Yeah, he's looking at himself in the mirror, not knowing himself because he's changed so much. Like it's uh it's it's really well framed. And this part again is really, really well animated. And yeah, got the uh got the heart racing a little bit here because I'm like, it's building, it's building, what's gonna happen? Please be okay, Karnaki, because I still love you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and it, it yeah, it gives us that confirmation essentially that there is some sort of ghoul infection going on. And yeah, I wrote down Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Okay, Ooh, I got yes. big vibes of that. And then the whole like mental struggles he's going through. I I just felt like this whole episode from the point of the attack onwards is like an allegory for like teenagers dealing with sort of puberty and then like depression and things like that. And I think we get the theme music at the end in the credits as well which leans into that and I was like okay between all of these elements and plot points theming I was sold at this point I think that's you, you sort of summarized that part perfectly yeah where we're seeing seeing this young man just adjusting to his body changing like puberty like shifting into adulthood and stuff like that it's, it's clearly not the way that we'd want to go for sure like becoming an adult you don't want to become a ghoul but um I feel like I am sometimes. <laughs> you, you both your eyes look okay right now. So unless you got contacts in, I don't have to worry too much. You, you're looking pretty good. Don't have to worry. But um, yeah, this moment happens where that transformation is confirmed. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde love that comparison because yeah, it, it is bang on as far as what's happening with Carnegie here. And then he sort of has this moment where there's some voiceover playing within the scene where they're like, you know, ordinary knives can't cut the ghoul's flesh. Uh, that's the best way to determine, like, if someone's a ghoul or, or you know you need something a little heavier to deal with the ghoul. So I immediately went, oh, shit, what's going to happen here? And, and yeah, Karnaki doesn't hesitate, runs straight into the kitchen, grabs a, a pretty hearty kitchen knife <laughs> yeah. and, that's like, lifts enough. up his shirt, looking down at his exposed chest. And there's no hesitation on the little man He's got the knife and he's sort of got it above his head. He's doing a big wind-up stab motion and he just whips it down with all his strength, 
right into his stomach and you sit there and go, fuck, what's happened? But you hear the knife break and you hear the blade sort of clink and clang onto the floor. And then, yeah, Carnegie realizes, yep, I'm a ghoul. It's confirmed in this moment. But it is a really big, sudden, intense escalation in those couple of minutes where, yeah, from the, the street scene to running home to seeing the eye in the mirror, punching the mirror, breaking the mirror, and then grabbing a knife and attempting to stab himself, right? Like he didn't grab the knife and it's like, oh, I'll just sort of... I'll, do, I'll just cut my finger. Like, Yeah, I'll just cut my finger or cut my arm. He, he went the whole hog. He went right for the guts with the giant kitchen knife and to, to see it break and do no damage to him at all. I'm like, man. So this goes to show how scared Carnegie is in this moment, but also it also made me think how goddamn strong and how potentially unkillable these ghouls are if they can withstand impact like that. Yep. And I think that's kind of enigmatic of the show too in like that ramp up where we go from these relatively calm, chilled out moments to sudden extreme violence. And like, yeah, too bad if he wasn't a ghoul in that moment. Yeah. Can, can you imagine if like, yeah, the blade went into his guts and he was like, oh no, oh, my, my new organs. Yeah. I'm Back to the hospital. The doctor's like, you again? Like, fancy seeing you here so soon and probably find someone else's organs to chuck into him this time. But um, yeah, it's a really cool moment. It's, it's a really heartfelt moment too because he falls to the floor and he's crying because he's realized that his life is changing forever. Definitely for the worse, it feels like, because yeah, he's a ghoul and he's going to probably start eating people soon. And then uh, we flash to the next scene where we see Toka again. She's just finished work at the cafe and it's almost like her ghouly sense is tingling because she's like, what's happening? Like, I feel something going on. What's happening here? And yeah, we see Karnaki on the beat again. He's, he's since left his apartment, managed to, I guess, collect his thoughts a little bit. And he's, he's walking out and in his head, there's this voice, kill a person, take their flesh and eat it. And you're like, whoa, the ghoul has firmly taken over Karnaki right now. And there's this moment where He's yeah, just, I guess, following his nose, you could say. And he's like, I smell something new. It smells like my mom's home cooking. My mom's home cooking. And he just aimlessly starts running towards this smell, salivating as he does. Like it was very cartoon-esque, like where you see like something in, in Looney Tunes where, you know, Pepe Le Pew is floating his way because he's smelling something all the way, you know, down, down the road in, in Paris somewhere. And lo and behold, he follows this smell all the way down into yet another random back alley. He can't escape these things. Yeah, he loves a loves a creepy back alley. Yeah. But yeah, that that line where it was like, kill a person, take their flesh and eat it. I was like, ooh, this is ominous. Like, did the ghouls almost have like this other head in their thoughts, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where they're dealing with split personality? Or is this just something that Carnegie's going to be dealing with? Because I guess he's half human, half ghoul, because he's got the insides, but he's still himself. It made me yeah, think, yeah, where are they going to go with this? It made me think back to the uh, Venom Morbius universe. It's like Venom, the symbiote, speaking to Tom Hardy's character. At least uh, at least the ghoul voice was not like, hey, Karaki, I used to be a loser. <laughs> you know, like oh, some of the worst in some of the worst in yeah. the uh, the comic universe, that dialogue. My goodness. Yeah, so we yeah, get none yeah. of that. He's just 
kill a person, take their flesh and eat it. Yeah, no subtleties about it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's subtle as a sledgehammer, this anime. They, they don't hold back. So he runs down into this random back alley and we see this other ghoul feeding on this uh, now deceased human man. Karnaki falls to his knees in tears again, realizing that that home-cooked meal he smelt was not like, you know, roast chicken and veggies. It was a human death. body. It was death. It was flesh. And we meet this other ghoul named Kazul. Pretty chill, that ghoul. Seems like a good dude. He's sort of saying, you know, I'm pretty hungry. Sorry, I, I can clearly see you're a ghoul as well, but I will offer you some flesh if you'd like some, young sir. Like, I'm like, oh, this is nice. There's a bit of like ghoul broing downness going on here. They're, they're friends. These ghouls can be can be nice and I guess human and um, respectful of one another. Rips off a, a leg. He's like <laughs> Just a, casually. He's like a drumstick of human leg. Like, okay. Yeah. It, it was such a such a cool moment. Yeah, it was very endearing and sweet seeing, yeah, Kazul just being just, just a friendly neighborhood ghoul, just wanted to do right by Karnaki. But that changes very quickly because then we're introduced to Nishki, who comes in and in one quick movement kicks Kazul's head clean off and it goes bouncing and landing right near Karnaki. Yeah, who, yeah is still in shock, still emotionally broken, still not really sure what's happening, but it's such a really quick moment. And the fact that I don't really show the kick happening in sort of full frame rate, it's only a couple of frames. There's a, it's like, what? I, I beg your pardon? What's going on? Kazul is dead and that's his head now. I have more questions than answers. Yeah, it's another cool way of like showing the abilities and strengths and weaknesses of these ghoul characters without like really giving away the ghost immediately. Like we've still got questions about how did he move so fast? How are they so strong? Um, why can't they be penetrated by regular blades and things like that? So there's that, that was the big thing I took away from this episode. There's a lot of intrigue and a lot more mystery that is still to be resolved throughout the rest of the season, yeah. which I think is yeah. great for a first episode of, you don't want to make it obvious of the direction you're going in the show. You want mm. to keep lots of threads left dangling to then be tied up later. So I think they did a good job in that sense. There, there's so many threads in this episode and yeah, meeting, meeting this powerhouse Nishki who can just effortlessly kick heads off people. I'm like, okay, maybe this guy's, potentially going to be a big bad maybe he's one of the big wigs around here especially kicking the head off another ghoul like he didn't just kick the head off a regular human like he yeah. kicked the head off a ghoul who we've already been proven are quite powerful and almost indestructible at points as well yeah it goes to show that Nishki's a bit of a bad bitch very quickly and, and he's very imposing and, and not to be uh not to be messed with and yeah he quickly walks over to Karnaki and he's saying, hey, you, you've entered my feeding grounds. Like, this is this is my turf, bro. Like, I own this part of the town. What are you doing here? This is so disrespectful. Uh, goes down some analogy about, um, you know, talking to his, talking to someone else's girlfriend and whatever else. And, yeah, we, we have this situation where, where Karnaki's now thinking, well, my time is up. This guy's probably going to punt my head off too. We get this really quick scene up from the, the rooftop looking down again. We can see the, the feet of someone overseeing and, and sort of monitoring this situation. And you're like, Ooh, okay, who's this? But we don't have to wait long at all because Toka then drops from the, from the, the rooftops 
very effortlessly, very superhero-esque, just drops like, what, 20 stories, <laughs> doesn't take any fall damage, just lands gracefully and tells Nishiki to let uh, Kaneki go. And she starts saying, you know, you've got no say in how these territories are divided up. You're just, you're just a, a general ghoul. Uh, these territories are run and governed by an agency called the Untaku. And Nishiki's like, you know, fuck the Untaku. You know, we don't need, we need, we don't need to deal with these, you know, button pushes and, and suits. They're not here living the day to day. And so there's a bit of a verbal stoush between the two. But that escalates quickly into violence because Nishiki and, and, and Toka are about to do the do the dance to, so I guess, see who's who's the toughest one of the two. Toka charges right on in. You don't really see what's happened. Nishiki, um, you know, takes one minor blow, you think, and he's like, oh, is, is that all you got? You know, that's nothing. And then Toka says, says a pretty funny, like an interesting quip back, and you see that she's so fast, she cut Nishiki like, 20 times from head to toe like you see this really cool animation where these wounds were impacted that quickly you see them all start like opening up instantaneously like, and the little bits of blood spurting out and it's a really cool moment we're like okay we just thought nishiki was the big bad that can just kick heads off and now toka is like this blade princess that is the fastest thing on two legs that can just effortlessly slice and dice somebody even though we saw five ten minutes earlier that a big old kitchen knife can't stab anybody but Mm -hmm. toka can cut this guy up like a hot knife through butter yeah and like when she mentioned the otaku you definitely sort of get the sense of there's a there's a lot more dynamics here in this gore world we've got some relatively nice guys we've got some real jerks but then there is some form of like governance on them as well and you're like okay i need now I want more of just the ghoul world. I, um, I don't care about the human world anymore. I, I want more of this ghoul world. Yeah, it uh, it made me think immediately of like the Hellboy live action films where they sort of go into the this the you know the the hidden underworld with all the monsters and yeah, there's hierarchy and government governance and law enforcement and social tiers. I started thinking like just like you said, like this isn't just a bunch of feral ghouls running around eating people willy nilly. There is some structure here and probably some laws and some reform that they need to adhere to, to continue to exist as a ghoul. But yeah, we pretty quickly understand how, how tough and strong Toka is because Nishiki, after he gets sliced up, turns tail and he just runs. He's like, no, I don't need any of this noise. See you Toka. See you Karnaki. Sorry for potentially alluding. who's going to kick your head off too. I'm out and shoots off and disappears almost in like a, a cloud of smoke. And then, um, yeah, Toka offers offers an arm to Karnaki. You can see she can see that Karnaki is getting very ravenous and is very hungry. And so, yeah, that that same arm that uh, Kazul offered him earlier, uh, she picks it up. You go, you know, have a, have a bite. Don't resist. And you can see initially he reaches out almost instinctively, but then realizes what he's doing and, is, and pulls back and like holds his arm close to his chest. And he's like, "No, I, I can't eat. I'm human." I refuse to eat. I'm I'm not going to be a ghoul. I've never heard a fly. How am I supposed to eat? Like, how am I supposed to live? And it's a really, really heartfelt moment. Like, it's a big emotional moment because you can see how torn Karnaki is and how he has no answers. Like, how am I going to live? How am I going to live from this moment? I don't want to live this world, this ghoul world where you, it's you know, survival of the fittest type of thing where eat or be eaten. And yeah, he doesn't want to 
a piece of that because he, he has literally never heard a fly in his life and he's just a sweet, innocent boy that just wants to be in love with a girl that likes the books he likes. Yeah, and there's, there's so much to take in for him in that moment of people that I know are now turning out to be ghouls. I potentially haven't eaten for days on end at all now, and any time I do, it just makes me throw up. And I've, I'm now pretty certain that I'm a ghoul. What the hell is happening here? Like, my whole entire world has just been shattered and turned on its head. The life he knows up until this moment is is gone because yeah, he is now Tanaki, uh, Kaneki, the the ghoul boy, and he's refusing to eat. And yeah, Toka's processing what's happening because she realizes during this exchange that he was with Rize and she's like, why, why didn't she eat him? Like what's happening here? So she's trying to piece together what's played out the last several days or several weeks, whatever the timeline is since the attack. And yeah, he's, he's still adamant. He's like, I'm not going to eat. How am I supposed to live? I can't be a ghoul. I'm a human, et cetera, et cetera. So then Toka's like, well, let me help you. And she rips off some flesh, charges at him with that crazy agility and rams this flesh right into his mouth and you'd assume straight straight down his throat. And that's where the credits roll in this moment where Toka's boom, straight in, like Hadoukens him with, with yeah. a bit of flesh right Just down the right down it. the gullet. And yeah, then the credits roll and we get this really cool track called Unravel by TK. Really like funky sort of alternative jam. And, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm feeling this vibe. But also that was such a hard cut point to end that episode on like it was a cliffhanger because you're like oh he's finally eaten what happens now does he turn fully i've got so many questions it felt like television of yesteryear where it's like yeah tune in next week children same bat time (laughs) same bat channel to see if to see if you know robin escapes from the joker and and i'm like man i am so in on this because like you said there's so many threads there's so many stories and things that are alluded to that are just glossed over, but have just hooked me. I've got so many hooks in me from this first episode. And it's just a fun, interesting, creepy, unsettling time. Yeah, it's a very, uh, for me, very Dragon Ball Z ending where it's just like, and this person is potentially dead and where it's ending the episode. <laughs> and you're like, oh, what? Okay, now I've got to yeah. wait. Well, back then, cheese TV times, I was like, I'll have to wait until tomorrow morning, get mm-hmm. ready for school and sit down and watch Dragon Ball Z. But And... With the whole, like, forcing him to eat, like, with some basic knowledge of, like, vampire lore, which is kind of the vibe you get from these ghouls, it does give you that, okay, so now that he's been forced to eat, he has to 100% turn now because that's kind of, that's always the, like, the ceiling factor for a, a vampire story where they don't fully become a vampire until they eat, and then as soon as they do, then then the chaos really kicks off. Yeah, I, I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, oh no, our boy Carnegie, he's gone. He's turning. He's going to go fully dark side here because yeah, Toka's just uh, signed his death warrant, it feels like, by force feeding him this uh, chunk of flesh. Uh, yeah, so we see that the, the 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 ending credits roll. But then I don't know if you watch through right to the end and we get a very weird recap introducing Kazul, the, the friendly ghoul that tried to feed to offer some food to Kaneki and we find out that he was a one-time aerobic class instructor. The animation style in this little like recap, it only goes for like 30 seconds. It's completely different to, to the main show, but it's like just this 
funny, whimsical, quirky recap slash intro to Kazul, who only got you know 30 seconds of screen time before his head got kicked off. So I like that they gave him a little bit of story and, and uh, fleshed him out a little bit more before his head ultimately got punted off. But it was a very, very weird way to end. But I'm like, this anime feels very weird and disjointed in all the right ways. So this didn't really break it for me either. Yeah, it's not like your classic like Marvel post-credit scene where it gives you more context or teases something future to come. It's kind of just a weird, like funny. It's kind of like the a Daredevil post-credit scene where, oh, not Daredevil, Deadpool post-credit scene where it's kind of just a joke. Yeah, and and that's it. And I'm like, okay, we we started really really hard and really abruptly and aggressively and we're ending on yeah we're ending on a bit of a light note so yeah what what is episode two going to bring me who the heck knows but um yeah that first episode i really dug it i was engrossed right from that cold open all the way through to the end i like the tonal shift i really like the characters they introduced they didn't overwhelm us with too many characters but the main ones we got some time with, I started to get attached to and, and care about them and have a little bit of curiosity about where they slotted in. But yeah, overall, I had a fun time with the first episode. What was your overall thoughts? Good, bad, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? Do you want to give it a rating? What what are you, what are you vibing after episode one? Uh, I really enjoyed the first episode. Um, I loved I loved the uh, post, not, not the post credit, the, the theme song in the credits. That's... That's probably one of my favorite theme songs now. Like, Damn, okay. It it vibes with my musical tastes. Like it's kind of alt-rock, emo rock music. I like, I, I'm loving the theme song. Um, I loved how it, the show gave us those hidden in plain sight moments with a lot of these characters and lots of open threads. So I think... Like if I used my rating scale, I would give this a four out of five, which is on my scale, like great, watch this. Um, yeah, like watch it as soon as you can, but not like drop everything and focus on it. But if this like sounds like something you would like, definitely check it out because like you recommended I watch this. I started it on Sunday and I've since gone on to watch the entire se- first season. In okay so yeah that uh that that's my my next question i was like will you continue to watch clearly you did and, and you've smashed out those first 12 episodes so non-spoiler how do you feel after watching this first season like are you still as keen is it still a four out of five for you now you've now you've made your way through all 12 of season one overall yeah i think the season would stay at a four there are a couple of episodes where it kind of dips for me but other than that i enjoyed it um yeah, just it continues that whole Dr. Jekyll yin and yang thing of balancing the ch- the two sides, the human goal elements and the, like we mentioned, the sort of puberty, depression, just change of life moments. I hmm. really enjoyed the whole, the whole thing. Nice, nice. Well, I hope you continue in, into season two. And yeah, there's there's some live action films if you wanted to attack them, which aren't too bad, to be honest. I was going to ask, is the live action movie any good? It, it's, the anime is better, but like the live action's pretty okay. Like so you see a lot of these mangas or animes translated to live action, especially when they get westernized, they can usually be pretty rough, like 
He's looking at you, Cowboy Bebop. That Death Note. The Death Note one was really bad. Yeah. I loved One Piece, though. Yeah, One Piece, actually, probably the best live-action anime adaptation. Oh, and Alita Battle Angel is really good, too. And I hope we finally get a part two to that. But when the Americans take hold of, of the anime and try and live-action it, for the most part, it sucks. But if the Japanese are doing these live-action adaptations, usually they're pretty heckin' good. So, yeah, they're, they're not bad. They're worth a look. Listeners, you're still on the fence about if this is an anime to watch. If you've enjoyed things like Dead Man Wonderland, Attack on Titan, Arjean, or Parasite the Maxim, if you've watched any of those and you thought that was great, they're the most commonly compared and recommended anime in parallel with Tokyo Ghoul. So if you love one of those, there's a fair chance you're going to love some of this. But, uh, Jamie, I'd love to hear your last word Presented by our friends over at Japan Crate. Experience Japan through snacks and knickknacks via monthly package drops courtesy of japancrate.com. And while you're there, be sure to use code 8BIT15 at checkout to save yourself 15% and get yourself free shipping on that crate anywhere on planet Earth. So, Jamie, what is your last word or words on Tokyo Ghoul? Uh, bright and visually dynamic and very gory and violent. I am in agreement with all those. And fun which is something you probably don't always think when you attach gory and violent to things. Like I like that it's fun and it gets a little bit silly because it makes those gory and violent moments hit even more because it's not just constantly punching you in the face with gore and, and intenseness. There is some, some lulls and some quiet moments and some silly and endearing moments. So when those big violent attacks hit, they hit all the more harder. Yeah. It's got, it's got character moments but it and the violence, but it doesn't divulge into just being like torture porn. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not torture porn. And you know what? If you're into that, that's fine. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yums here, but uh, yeah, there's a really great fleshed out story in a universe here that's well worth exploring. But Jamie, yeah, that brings us to the end of another episode of More Than Anti. Thank you so much for stopping on by Give the listeners one last shout out to what you got coming up, where they can find you, et cetera, et cetera, because, uh, yeah, you've got so many things that are well worth taking a peek of, listeners. Like, as we mentioned at the start, we'll put all the all the links in the show notes to the thousands of things that Jamie's doing on the regular. But, man, what's what's coming up that uh, listeners can get excited about? Uh, we have, so the latest batch of Australian wrestling cards will be up for pre-sale in January. Uh, the next issue of Pario Magazine will be also out in January. And then on the podcast, we have a Squid Game The Challenge review coming up, a Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory refresh ahead of Wonka. And then one of my favorite episodes, which we've just sort of done our first ever movie draft for 2024, where we selected our six picks for potentially what could be the best movies of the year, basing it on the Metacritic Metascore. And I've already been bitten the butt with one of my choices with it not releasing in our window that we allocated. So I've already been screwed over like 24 hours after we recorded. (laughs) They announced the release date of this movie and it's not in the window we're covering. So I think that's still going to be a fun episode though, so. I, I love those draft and prediction episodes. They're always good. And then especially revisiting them at the back end of the year and seeing, you know, where were the hits, where were the misses, who uh, who was the, the most accurate drafter? Yep. Yeah, so that should be a fun one. 
Nice, nice. Um, yeah, if you obviously wanted to check out all the fantastic things that Jamie does, you can check him out on Twitter or X if you're a sicko and want to call it that, at Jamie Apps Media. You can find me at Brendan 8-Bit. You can find 8-Bit as a whole at We Are 8-Bit. Check out the Hungry Gamers podcast. We are doing our end-of-year recaps and festivus episodes uh, in the next couple of weeks too, so there's plenty of content to consume there as well. But be sure to rate and subscribe this podcast the commentary booth as well as all the other podcasts you listen to on the regular because those ratings and reviews help keep the emotional lights on in our hearts but whether your anime be subbed dubbed or still yet to come enjoy yourself stay hungry and much love to all the gorgeous waifus out there goodbye Okay.